Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, for the last time from Arlington, Texas. Uh, this is kind of a historic show. I'm sitting in my home. There's not much left here. Uh, I'm going to pick up a U-Haul trailer in just a little bit as soon as I finish cutting today's show. Again, tomorrow's show will be a rebroadcast uh, with an intro. So I guess it's not technically the last show. It'll be the intro for tomorrow's show. will be uh, cut like five minutes after I finish this one. But uh, the last full show here. And we'll be loading up the two trucks and everything. And on Tuesday, uh, I, the wife, uh, will both pile into one of the two trucks. And each will have a dog and a cat and a whole bunch of stuff. And we will convoy this time up to uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas. And when we get there and we unload our stuff, this house will be empty and the move will be over. And um, once again, I know maybe I say it a lot lately, but that's because I mean it. Thank you to every single person that's listened to this show, that shared it with others. Uh, and especially thank you to those of you who have joined the Member Support Brigade and helped support the show and have made this possible. I promise you... The partnership we form together is going to pay off in a big way in the coming months as we have our office and our space and our time and our ability to produce greater content for you than you've ever experienced from us before. Thank you, and again, um, I am about to do everything I can to pay you back. I am going to warn you, though, I'm going to take vacation in June because uh, it's been stressful. I also want to tell you, um, I was running a discount over the weekend. For 20% off any membership, this monthly, six-month membership, yearly, whatever, for your first term, you get 20% off. With the discount code 20, uh, since I'm going to miss a show Wednesday, I'm going to extend that through Wednesday. So you have till Wednesday to use that discount code. The discount code is 20, and that's not the number, it's the word, T-W-E-N-T-Y. Uh, you use that when you check out, and you can uh, use any uh, membership you want. You get 20% off the Member Support Brigade. I'll also let you know that the form on the site, if you want to join by mail, still has the Arlington address. Just use it. Our mail will be forwarded starting Tuesday. That's the way we want it done. I'll change the form after the move is complete. A lot of people have been asking me, if I want to mail something to you, mail it to the Arlington address. We have mail forwarding. It's all taken care of. All right. Let's go ahead and uh, knock out our housekeeping so we can get into today's show. Housekeeping item one, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Self-Defense Consultants. You know, I I love the Second Amendment. I love my guns. You're not going to get my guns away from me. It ain't going to happen, right, from my cold, dead hands. And I'll buy more guns in the future, and I will put them in the same category from my cold, dead hands. And I think it's important that we have that attitude. But I also think that if we're going to own a gun... There's two things we need. One's ammo, uh, but the other one is training on how to use it. Without either one of those, the gun is an expensive club. It may not even be a very good club without training, though. And I know a lot of people have this belief that if I have to do it, I'll know what to do and I'll do that. But the reality is, when you're in a stressful situation that actually calls for the use of lethal force, 
it is unbelievable how much different things are, and you don't know that you'll be able to do it. Even with training, you don't know. But training ups the odds that you'll come out of it alive, and you'll come out of the other side with the people you were trying to protect alive as well. That's why it's important to have firearms trained from a great organization like Fortress Self-Defense Consultants. And here's the great thing, guys. Let's say you can't get to them. You put together a group. They'll find a range local to your area. They'll come to you, and they'll run training in your area. So get in touch with them today. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. The first people that ever stepped up and said, Jack, we want to sponsor your show. Absolutely awesome, awesome, awesome service. Absolutely awesome product selection, absolutely awesome pricing, and they have a discount buyer's club, $29 one time. You get a discount for the rest of your life on just about everything they sell. But you join the member support brigade, which you get 20% off of today. Guess what? You get that discount membership for free. So that's $29 of your value right there for your first year. Check out SafeCastle even if you're not part of the MSB, though, because they have an awesome selection of everything you need to prep. Great service, great shipping, and again, if you if you can think of it, you can find it there. Also, check out their sister site while you're there. You can link over to it. They make some of the best hardened shelters, storm shelters, and things like that you'll ever find anywhere in the world. Um, next up, I do want you guys to make sure you stay in touch with us on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Those three platforms, YouTube in particular, are fixing to get used a hell of a lot more in the coming months, so make sure you connect with us that way. Check out our gear shop. We have cool stuff there. You're going to hear from Gary Vaynerchuk today about education, right? Uh, I'm going to bring him on for just a couple minutes. Uh, we'll see how that happens here in just a second. Um, but he also, you know, he did a show here with us, and I want you to know that in the gear shop right now, you can buy a copy of the Thank You Economy just for the shipping and nothing else. Uh, I, I brought, bought 80 copies of his book to get him on the show for that one episode. That was the deal, and I agreed to give them away. I sent them over to the gear shop. They're charging like a dollar or two over shipping for the time it takes to package them up and all. But basically, for eight bucks, you get a $14 book. Uh, with no shipping because the shipping is the charge. And if you buy a couple other things while you're at the gear shop, you'll get it completely for free because if they're shipping one thing, they can kind of combine it and work it out for you. So check the gear shop out. Won't talk about the MSB today because I already did with the discount and I want to rock on in today's show. Um, the first thing I want to talk to you about today uh, came to an, me in an email from uh, a guy named uh, Blitz. That's what it says on his thing. It's actually Rob. Okay, Rob. Rob says, um, Hi, Jack. I wanted your thoughts on financing for a PV solar system. That's photovoltaic. When does it make sense to get into more debt for a hard asset like solar? See below for background information and my personal info. I'm resending this question in the proper format in hopes that you will answer it. And, of course, he did send me a book. And uh, he, this time he sent me the question up front. Uh, here's what he's saying, uh, some background information, the part that I actually need. Do you have any thoughts on how to finance? Here's what I was thinking. Maybe you can share your wisdom as best you can without being in my situation. I have 16000 in savings, 36000 in my 401k money market funds. My only real debt is my house. Since my car will be paid off soon, we are on a single salary with a child at home. Until our food production hits peak, we may be running a slight deficit monthly, therefore tapping into reserves. I am not convinced that my money market for O&K will be of much value in 30 years from now when I'm eligible to take it out. Therefore, I've been thinking that I can take that, what I have now, minus taxes and penalties, put it into hard assets like solar. It's worth mentioning I have not been contributing to my 401k for years since I can't afford that right now, and I will be moving into an IRA soon. Okay. Uh, system I'm looking for will cover 30% of my energy needs. 
cost about $25,000. Here's what I'm going to tell you right now. I hate to put it to you this way, but this is the reality. Right now, Rob, you cannot afford it. Okay? Simple. You can't save any money under your current situation. You only have about $16,000 in savings. Your 401k retirement money, um, there's a lot of things you can do with that to grow that money without taking it out now. Uh, it's sitting in a money market account, a fund. You probably need to find a good advisor and get creative with some ways to make some money with that money right now and leave it the hell where it is. Uh, at this point in your life, you don't have a whole lot put away. You're still paying on your car. You're a single-income family, and you're running a deficit because you're not producing enough food yet. It's not the time. When would financing be okay for a photovoltaic solar system? If your house was paid for and you had the cash, but using, using the cash would really knock down your reserves sufficiently, you had strong income and you said, I wanted to do a $25,000 system and uh, I want to finance half of it and here's my repayment plan, I would say, well, we can look at that almost as like a property debt because it's part of the house. And if all the numbers work out, and if you got into a bad situation, you could, you could handle it for a year, uh, and, and you just didn't want to give up the money right now, I would say, I don't, I, I don't think you should, but fine. Okay, you want it now versus in 12 months, I can understand that. Um, it'll be there, it'll help you out, fine. But I'd like to propose something else to you, Rob. What you need to do right now is figure out if you finance that system, how much money a month it would cost you. And for the next 12 months, I want you to pretend that you have that system. And I even want you to take 30% of your electric bill, and I want you to deduct it from that number. So if your electric bill is uh, $200, that would be $60. And if your payment on the system would be uh, $160, then your payment that month would be $100. Because I want it to be like you bought it. And I want you to put that money into your savings account. And I want you to see how that works. And odds are you're going to be like, I can't afford to do that, which means you can't afford to buy the system. That's what I think is going to happen. The worst case scenario is 12 months from now, you'll have more cash to use to actually pay for the system. Now we can look at that $16,000, maybe it's twenty. And now we can say maybe we don't need a $25,000 system. Maybe we need to get some more bids. Maybe we need to look at doing some of the work ourselves. Maybe we need to either spend less than $25,000 to get 30% of our needs, or if we're going to spend $25,000, we're going to get better than 30% of our needs. We also need to look at our home, and we need to say, you know what, it doesn't make sense to bring in photovoltaics until we're doing everything as efficiently as possible. So my first questions to you are, would it make more sense to invest much less money in things like Energy Star appliances, radiant barriers, existing insulation, uh, in increasing your existing insulation? And I know those sound boring in comparison, but a radiant barrier is cheap, dirt cheap, especially if you do it yourself. And if you can attach uh, uh, basically really thick foil and foam to the inside of your roof, if you can pull that off, You can install a radiant barrier. It's just not that hard. Uh, additional insulation, if you can unroll it, you can pull that off. So that alone could do wonders for you. Maybe putting in a solar attic fan, things like that. Um, the, the other thing I'm going to have a question for you on is, how are you heating your home? Your heating of your home is going to be very, very expensive uh, in Pennsylvania, which is I know where you're at. So... Um, If that's with electric, by going to bring in some kind of a wood heating system uh, or, or something else, you might be able to drastically reduce it. 
On solar, you may be far better off right now in your given situation. You got sixteen grand, six thousand dollars would probably install a solar hot water system, uh, turnkey, and that is probably going to save you close to 25% of your electrical cost because unless you're heating your water with gas, your largest expense from your electricity other than air conditioning is heating your water. So there's just so many things you can do that make more sense right now in this position you're in in life. You need to work on increasing your savings, your income, reducing your overall debt. So all of the things that I give you, you can fund out of your savings. You could take maybe $8,000, and if you get really aggressive with shopping for that solar hot water system, you can probably upgrade an appliance or two, put in a solar hot water system, install a radiant barrier, install uh, some additional insulation, get better savings than the photovoltaic system will give you initially, then take that savings, put it into into additional savings, ramp up that food production that you're working on so that you can cut that part of your expense, pay off the car that's soon going to be paid off, not touch your 401k, get a little bit more creative with that, look at some things. If there's 36 grand in there, take 16 of it and put it into some type of like a high-yield real estate trust with a stop loss on it so you can't lose it. Make 9 to 18% on that money. Be conservative with the rest of that money. Get it out of a money market account. It doesn't belong there right now. Very safe, very conservative, dividend-producing stocks, neighborhood of, of 2 to 4%, or look for a short, get, get it into the IRA where you can do this type of thing first. Get it into a short-term mutual fund that pays 2% with no penalty to move in and move out. That's going to do better for you. Get it into CDs that are staggered. Do something with it. Do better than the money market account to make some return on you know, the 20 of it and leave that there. Five years from now, with all of that going on, you'll probably be able to go in and put in a system larger than you expected to do now for less money that will do more for you because you have the efficiencies taken care of and because you're more, uh, you're more able to actually handle the cost of the installation at that point and you've taken more control of your life and because the cost of those systems is going to keep going down over time because the efficiencies of the panels and the components keep going up. Just my thoughts. Now, if you were floating in money right now, I'd say there's no problem with it, but I don't think you're where you can afford this right now. You need a much quicker ROI than solar panels give you at this point in your life from my ba from the background information you have. Let's go ahead and take another one. All right, so going forward with this, I want my last caller and anybody with an IRA 401k to kind of perk your ears up right now. If you have an IRA, a 401k, a 403b, or any type of tax-deferred retirement account, any type of private pension account, I want you to pay attention very closely to the next email and the article that goes with it. So this includes all the things I said about being aggressive with the last caller's money, and I'll pay attention to this. There may come a day where if it looks like they're coming after it, it's better to pay interest penalties, pull it out, and take control of it away from the government's greedy hands. That's not now. But I have been saying that one of my concerns with IRAs, 401ks, pensions, etc., is that in the future the government will in some way, shape, or form attempt to come after those monies in the form of taxation or uh, public, making them public in some way, saying they're here to help you and guarantee you an income stream and saying 25% of your money has to go in treasury bonds that will pay you basically an annuity. Well, what does it look like when a government comes after its citizens' pensions? Well, we get one look into it based on what the Irish are doing. And uh, 
This is not necessarily what it will look like in America, but it gives us an idea of what governments do when they get desperate. And the way they do it is less important than what they do. And what they're doing here is going after money that previously has not been taxable because of retirement planning. Let me read this to you. This is from um, the, what blog is this on? I've scrolled down so I can read the actual article from that. Or the Business Insider. And uh, it's, it's tight. And there's tons of information on this. I know this is valid. Irish bombshell. Government rates private pensions to pay for spending. The Irish government plans to institute a tax on private pensions due to, to drive job growth, according to its job program strategy delivered today. Without the ability to sell debt due to soaring interest rates and severe spending rules in place due to its EU IMF bailout, Ireland has, has few ways of spending to stimulate the economy. Today's jobs program includes specific tax increases, including a tax on pensions aimed at keeping government job spending from 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 adding to the national debt. The tax on private pensions will be six-tenths of a percent and last for four years, according to the report. Hey, hey, old lady. Hey, old man. That worked your whole life for your pension? Come on, pay your fair share. It's only six-tenths of one percent. We're only doing it for four years. Hell, you'll probably die in the next three and you'll cheat us out of one year of it. It's not that big a deal. It's time for you to pull your weight. From the jobs initiative released, the various tax reduction and additional expenditure measures, which I am announcing today, will be funded by way of a temporary levy on funded pension schemes. Listen to this. Listen to this word. Listen to this word. Funded by the way of a temporary levy on funded pension schemes. So now your pension isn't your pension the place that your government told you to put your money for all time, to be safe, to plan for your future, to take care of yourself when you're old, it's not a plan, it's a scheme. Oh, and personal pension plans. For us, I think that would be our IRAs and 401ks. I propose that the levy will apply at a rate of six-tenths of a percent to the capital value of assets under management in the pension funds established in the state. Okay, now I want you to really understand what that means. Six-tenths of a percent. All right. So when you first hear that, it sounds like, let's say that if every every month from your pension, uh, you get a check for $2,000, then some you know bookkeeper would run their little calculator and say, hey, you know, it's, it, all we're going to do is take $1.20 from your $2,000. That's it. That's all we're going to do. It's $1.20 a month. What's, what's your problem? But see, that's not how it works. Let me read that again. I propose that the levy will apply at a rate of six-tenths of a percent to the capital value of assets under management in pension funds established in the state. That means that what they're doing in Ireland is if you're sitting on a half a million dollars, right, they're going to take six-tenths of a percent of your total pension's asset value every year for four years. Now, that's only like 600 bucks, but... Come on, man. This is this is people's retirement. And how hard is it once this is in place to say, you know, we need 1%. Uh, four years has to become five years. 1% has to become 1.25%. It's very, very easy once they get in place. Because here's the thing. You can read the whole article. And I'll put a link to a couple other articles about this um, in the show notes today. But what are they going to do with this? They're going to borrow the money or take the, steal the money. Let's say in the borrow. They're not going to pay it back. They're going to tax the money out of these accounts that are not supposed to be taxed. 
They're not going to tax the income. I want you to really understand this. They're not taxing the income. They're taxing the account's total value. If you have a million dollars you put away for retirement and you don't need it yet, but your retirement age, uh, in fact, the way I look at this, it looks like they're going to tax all the pension plans. Let me read that again real quick. Funded pension schemes and personal pension plans. I propose that we tax... Yeah, to me it sounds like they're going to tax yours. If you're 35 years old, they're going to tax the value of it sitting there right now. So it's not just the old people that they're doing. Wow, you got to think before you uh, realize how, how evil this thing really is. So this would be like your government saying, um, Hey Tom, hey, hey Mary, hey Jill, hey Joe. Um, you know that money you've been putting away in your 401k and your IRA and, and whatever? In fact, you're really squared away, so you have a 401k and an IRA. You know, we're going to take six-tenths of a percent out of it like a fee uh, for the next four years. And as you keep contributing, they're going to keep taking it. So understand, this is not about taking six-tenths of a percent out of somebody's you know, self-funded Social Security check, which is what a pension really is. This is taking six-tenths of the asset value. This is like becoming a partner with the, uh, with the fund advisors and sucking that money out. So... This is what it looks like in this instance. And I just want you to be aware that this is the type of thing that goes on. Because here's the other side of the, 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 the sword here. They're taking it to create jobs because they can't borrow any money because they can't go into debt because they already got bailed out. And the people that bailed them out said, you got to pay us first. And that's reasonable, right? Let's say you took out a mortgage on your home and you wanted to take out an additional mortgage on your home. And I held your first mortgage. And your house was worth $100,000 and you already owed me $125,000. And then you went and tried to borrow another hundred thousand, so you were going to owe two twenty-five. And I was going to have to share your debt with somebody else when you already owed more than you could afford to pay, and you already owed more than you were worth to me. I'm not going to let that other mortgage happen. I'm going to step in and, and, and put a stop to it. And the other lender's not going to do it once he finds out anyway. Well, that's kind of what's going on in Ireland right now. So they can't borrow money, and they can't go into debt, and they want to create jobs with an Obama-style stimulus. And to be fair, a Bush-style stimulus, right? So they want to spend money and hire government workers. Well, they can't do that. So they're going to raid the private pension funds, raise about 480 million Irish, whatever they are, dollars, right? And then hire workers to create jobs. But these workers are going to be government workers, which means they don't produce anything. They don't create a profit. Even if they pay taxes, they obviously get paid more than they get taxed. So what's going to happen next? Well... You're going to get to a point where four years from now, the money's going to run out. And they say, but we hired all these people now. And unless the private sector growth is commensurate with the public sector growth, which it never is because by the nature of one growing, the other shrinks. Where do they come from? Then they say, well, we can't lay these people off. We'll just have to make this thing permanent. And, you know, it's working so well. And it really, nobody even sees the cost because it comes out of your balance and it's so small. You know, let's just raise it to point, point, point 0.08 or 1%. And think of all the wonderful things we can do then. Keep an eye on your, your retirement, folks. This is not here yet. But again, this is what it might look like. Next email is from Eric who finds me all kinds of great stuff to complain about. And uh, this one... If you needed more of a reason to believe the governments are incompetent, how about this one out of the AP? Again, I know this is a legitimate story. Uh, FEMA asked for a return of disaster aid. Yeah, we'd like our disaster aid back. Cedar Rapids, Iowa, after raging Cedar, the raging Cedar River filled his home with 13 feet of water and ruined most of his possessions, Justin Van Fleet pleaded for help from the Federal Emergency Management Agency to get back on his feet. 
Dead, broke, and living in a FEMA trailer following the 2008 front, uh, flood, Van Fleet repeatedly submitted paperwork to make and made countless phone calls arguing his case. After seven months, the agency finally gave him more than $20,000, which he said gave him his life back and allowed him to move into his house. Then in March, a letter arrived from the government with a shocking message. He should have never gotten the money, and he had just 30 days to pay it all back. The agency is asking Van Fleet and thousands of other Americans who are victims of natural disasters to return more than $22 million in government aid, acknowledging it mistakenly made payments uh, to many people who were ineligible. Uh, I'm going to let that, if you read the rest of the article uh, on your own, I'm not going to say too much on this because all I'm saying is your government's incompetent. This is why we can't trust the government to do things for us. They can't even handle helping, helping victims with the agency designed to help victims and doing it accurately. And to be dumb enough to think that somebody whose life was destroyed by a flood who you gave the money to would be able to give the money back is ridiculous. Now, let me, let me explain something very important to you here. This is a hardworking guy trying to put his life back together, that did everything the way he was supposed to do. This is not a guy that wanted to sit around and live off the government's dime and complain about his FEMA trailer for three or four years and fraud and defund the system. This was not a guy who never had a job or, or a profession in the first place. This was a guy who was the kind of guy that this stuff is actually supposed to help. And his life really was destroyed, and he took the money and did what he was supposed to do with it. He fixed up his home and moved back in and went back to living his life and being a productive member of society. And now the government says, you got 30 days to give us the money back. If they weren't supposed to give it to him, incompetence. If they expected he could pay it back, incompetence. And if they're going to do something to him if he doesn't, then Nazism. I mean, this is absolutely freaking ridiculous. You can read this whole article on your own. I don't want to read it right now because it'll just make me upset, and I don't want to do that to you. So now I'm going to read something that's supposed to be far more comforting, except unfortunately I got my stories out of order, and I'm just going to go in the order they're in because this is not comforting. Uh, this comes from the Health Day Reporter. Uh, scientists find MRSA, or MRSA, germ in supermarket meats. Contamination with antibiotic-resistant bacteria, probably from humans handling the meat. Wednesday, May 11th, Health Day News. MRSA, a bacteria resistant to common antibiotics, has been discovered in supermarket meats, and the germ is apparently being introduced by human food handlers, the new study reports. Although cooking will kill the bacteria, consumers run the risk of infection if they handle the meats contaminated with the germ, researchers said. MRSA, methicillin-resistant stapto, I can't speak that way, is common in hospitals and nursing homes. Uh, where it can cause serious illness, even death, and a so-called community-acquired MRSA has become a problem among high school and college athletes who share equipment. This type of MRSA appears as a skin infection and is usually less serious, according to the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention. It's a community-acquired MRSA that was found in the meats researcher said. MRSA has always been found on hu in human patients, but we found this in retail meat, so retail meat can be a reservoir for these bugs. So the study lead searcher Yusuf Zhang, assistant professor of the Department of Nutrition and Food Science at Wayne State University in Detroit. When people handle food, they get the bugs from the meat if the meat is already contaminated. The risk of being infected is especially high 
if you have open cuts or sores on your hands, Zhang added. When you handle food, especially if you have wounds in your hands, wear gloves and protect yourself from the MRSA infection. The researchers found a human strain of MRSA in meat so people can transfer the bacteria to meat, she said. Contamination can occur if carriers of MRSA handle meat or if MRSA is in the environment, which might happen in meat processing plants. I'm going to let you read the rest of the article if you want to on your own. I just want to say what possibly could be wrong in our meat processing plants. And uh, it doesn't really say, but I'm going to guess, just guess here, that the odds are that the contamination might be higher in something like, you know, cheap crown meat that has uh, 20% uh, slime added to it. Or that if something's glued together with meat glue, which many of you said, Jack, the meat glue's not that bad. Remember I told you about the meat glue? They make this from beef blood or pork blood and all kinds of stuff, and then they stick a bunch of pieces of meat together, and you can't tell, and they slice it up, and they sell it to you as a single cut of meat. Well, see, this is where I start to get concerned with stuff like that. It's not about an ick factor. You know, because i got a lot of people that comment on it and say, well, other cultures eat things all the time that we would find icky, and we eat things that they would find icky. No, this is about safety. Okay, MRSA is just one bacterium that would be more likely to be on the surface of meat than in, the, in you know a solid cut. And when we cook the solid cut of meat, whatever bacteria or bugs or whatever that's on the outside of that meat is applied directly to the flame. And if we're cooking something that we think is a nice round ribeye or something like that, and it's not, and we cook that meat medium, maybe we don't cook it enough. We should It should be fine. It should be fine if it was what it was sold to us as. But if it's not and we don't know it, there's a risk. But... I do think that we can really get over the top worried about this. Here's the reality about MRSA. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. If somebody came into your house right now, swabbed the whole place down, they would find MRSA in your home. And I don't care if you were one of these freaked out germaphobes that wipes down every inch of your house with bleach and stuff like that. First of all, I think you are crazy for acting that way. Uh, but even if you are, they will find it. And I know the germaphobe right now is going, Oh God, oh God, it's there. The reality is that we have a lot of resistance to these things. But MRSA, when it gets into a wound, especially a wound that's maybe already got some things that are lowering resistance, can be a problem. So this is a reason, and I want you to think about this. People think about well, cuts and stuff like that. What about little bitty hangnail type stuff going on around your fingertips? Where the skin's broken, there's a little bit of redness, there doesn't really bleed. Uh, that's a great entry point for stuff like this. So you got to be careful handling your meat, folks. I... You know, and this is why I like to stick to organically raised, grass-fed, um, stuff that I hunt down my, on, my, on my own. Uh, it's just less likely to become contaminated because, well, it doesn't go through a meat processing plant, quote-unquote, uh, which is where they're, you know, doing things to meat that really shouldn't be done to meat in many instances. So let's move on from that one. And uh, the next one here is, uh, this is an interesting question. Uh, hi, Jack. I just started work in January, and I've been contributing to a Roth 401k. But I'm interested in buying real estate as an investment property in Las Vegas, Nevada. My question is this. Can I roll over traditional IR 401k into real estate tax and penalty-free? If I can, I think this would make sense to contribute to a pre-tax 401k. Am I right with my assumption? Any thoughts are appreciated. Yeah, but it's not quite what a lot of people think. If you go out and you take your 401k or you already have an IRA and you use it, you get the 401k into an IRA format and you set up everything so you can buy real estate with your IRA, you can do it a couple different ways. You can actually use the IRA to make payments on the real estate. You can buy the real estate cash. But 
the IRA now acts like a corporation in its holding of the 401k or the holding of the real estate. You don't own the real estate. Your account does. You can't live there. So it says as investment property. So what does that mean? If it means I want the property and I want a tenant, and the tenant's going to pay rent, you can do that. Here's the other side of that. The tenant pays the rent to the corporation, the IRA, that owns the real estate. So you're putting cash flow into your IRA in the form of rent. Get into a situation where you have a tenant who's not paying the bills and you have to take the time to evict them. You have to cover the cost. There's all kinds of stuff there. You can do it, but you cannot live in the property. You can't rent it to yourself. That would be cheating. That would be giving you the tax break today instead of when you're 59 and a half. So they're not going to have the time to figure out how to take it away from you the way the Irish are doing. All right? This is just one example of, uh, of where things sound really good when some guy on late night TV or some, you know, tax expert or real estate expert is spouting them out. But when you look at the reality on the ground, there's a lot more to it than that. This, that said, is, is that necessarily a bad thing? No. And there's a lot of things you can do. You can, if you have enough money and you lose your tenant, you can contribute the same amount you're covering to your IRA. And as long as you don't, but again, there's maximum contribution amounts. So uh, if you buy real estate that exceeds your contribution amount, you can start destroying the value of your IRA. Now, technically, you're building equity in the real estate, but now you're risking real estate. So there's a lot of there's a lot of caveats here. Let me give you another idea if you want to play in the real estate game. It's much easier to do in an IRA. It has risk, but we can mitigate the risk with something called a stop loss. I'm going to do something right now I don't normally do. I'm going to recommend, not even really recommend, I'm going to give two companies as examples that are kind of into this world that I'm talking about, real estate investment trust type companies. I'm going to tell you that they are traded as a stock and there are risks to them. But, again, we can mitigate that with a stop loss. So what I mean, let's say the stock's trading at $4, and you don't want to risk any more than losing 20% of your money while you hold that stock. Well, we can take 20% of $4, and we can figure out that that adds up to, you know, $0.80. Cents. And we can say that means that at three, if this thing ever hits three twenty, I want it sold immediately. I want to cut my losses at a 20% loss. Now, if the, if the, the fund is paying 14%, which I'm about to tell you one that does, and you collect 14% for two years, and you do experience a 20% loss because something catastrophic happens, your stop loss kicks in, right? And you lost 20%, but you made 28%. You're still 8% ahead. That's 4% a year for two years. You had a potential for much higher upside, but you've safety netted yourself with, with limited risk. Real estate's a good place to do this. One that I've talked about before is called uh, Chim- Chimnera Investments. Uh, Chimera Investment Corporation. The, the sticker symbol is CIM. It's currently trading at about 386. I do hold some of this myself. It pays a dividend yield of about 14%. Um, and I have a stop loss on it. What you can do with these two, sometimes these go up. As they go up, you can protect your gains on the, over, uh, the stock price itself. So let's say you bought something at $4 and it goes up to $5. Well, now you could go ahead and put your stop loss back in at four, and you've protected your twenty. You've, now you're protecting your principal. You can put your stop loss in at four fifty and protect your gain. You have to watch it. The stop loss is just in case something happens while you're unaware, 
right? Because sometimes you might want to back it down because maybe if you've chased it up, it is coming down, but you're willing to let it come down further now um, because you know why it's coming down or what have you. But with that one, you can make 14% on your money in real estate, and you can you know you can put your stop loss at 10% if you want to. Um, you can put it at 5%. You can put it anywhere you want, but you may not stay in long enough with some of these that are more volatile. Look at the history of volatility, how, you know, where it comes down. Another one I'm going to give you is called American Capital Agency Corp. Its ticker, ticker symbol is AGNC. What does it pay? About an 18% dividend yield. Both of these can be held in an IRA or 401k. AC, uh, the, the American Capital Fund that pays more also has dividend reinvestment opportunities. So every time that dividend comes, you can have it buy more of the same fund. So if you wanted to do real estate in an IRA, 401k, this might be another way to do it or some portion of the money. Now, I want to be very clear about this kind of money. Not 10% total wealth, like I talk when I say 5% total wealth in, in gold or silver. In your retirement, this is something that maybe in your, your long-term savings and retirement, you know, wherever those lines blur for you, this is something you do with maybe 5 to 10% of the total money in that whole world. This is not something you do with 80% or 50% of your retirement money. There's risk here. Again, we can mitigate that risk with a stop loss, but we also can make sure, you know, we want to make sure we're really paying attention because these things have a potential to almost crash overnight. But... If you look at their history and how long they've been around, some of them have been around for a while. And there's other types of things that do that. But let's face it, uh, a, a healthy dividend like that, we could ride an 18% dividend for two or three years and really collar up the stop loss during that time period. If at any point we lose 10% of our principal, we are so far ahead of anything else. Just another way to look at things. Again, I'm not an investment advisor. If you go dump, $100,000 in these things, and you don't talk to an advisor, you don't put in a stop loss, you don't hedge against uh, the downside, and you get wiped out. Don't cry to me. But I am telling you, this is the way to get somewhat creative and a little bit aggressive with another piece of your income. And those are two that I, one, I'm about to put some money in, and two, I've had money in for quite a while. Uh, again, small portions thereof, but great returns on what you put in. Okay, this is one, if you if you are anywhere near the Arkansas area, I want everybody to listen, but particularly if you're anywhere near the Arkansas area, anywhere we could get to Little Rock for a conference, and uh, you're in law enforcement, so you would qualify to go to this conference, or you know somebody that fits that description, possibly get in touch with them and see if maybe you can help me out here. I want somebody to attend this and report back to us on what really goes on here. What is this conference about? I'm just going to, uh, this is an announcement that was sent to me uh, by James, who's a, a member of Oath Keepers, actually an officer in Oath Keepers. And uh, said, you know, he kind of perked his interest. He thought of me right away, and he wanted me to get this out. Um, so this is a, a guy on YouTube that I've actually never met. I don't know anything about him, uh, but he's putting out just basically reading the PDF. So I know the conference is actually going on. It's happening soon. I would love to get a Leo uh, to go to that conference that, that you know is open to both sides of the issues to get back to us. And here's why. Well, I'll tell you why after you hear the announcement and. Uh, Again, I'd love someone that could go to this to go and let us know the real truth about what goes on. Are we being paranoid? Is it, you know, is it as bad as it sounds? Is it not quite so bad? What's it like? So here we go. Let's just uh, listen to the announcement on this thing. Hey guys, after a lot of a with a lot of urgency, a friend told me I needed to read this PDF, so I started looking through it and uh, well, prepare to be offended. Um, just a couple of quick notes. You need to really appreciate what's going on in this memorandum. You need to be familiar with 
what a sovereign citizen in America is. And you need to be familiar with the Southern Poverty Law Center and who they are. If you know those two things, then you're going to really grasp what's going on here. Okay, so this is the Sovereign Citizen Overview and the Groups of Arkansas. And I'd like to reiterate Sovereign Citizen Overview is the primary focus of this and the Groups of Arkansas. Uh, June 8th, 2011. Not wonderful down in Little Rock, Arkansas. Not too far from where I went to high school, of all things. So, uh, just to read through this, the U.S. Attorney's Office Law Enforcement Coordinating Committee is excited to bring you a look at different groups and the threats they pose to law enforcement in Arkansas. You will gain information about their beliefs and learn strategies on how to prepare to handle confrontations and contacts with individuals prescribing to these types of views and find out what groups are active nationwide and in Arkansas. Before going any further, I'd just like to ponder the idea of why they, why would they even be concerned that they're about to be handling confrontations with sovereigns I wouldn't know. But if we go to the next sentence, they then say an overview of many different groups will be presented, and somehow they string in sovereign citizen along with the other groups, Ku Klux Klan, neo-Nazi, racist skinhead, and a black separatist. Now, uh, at least, let's see, four of these groups here are violent and their beliefs will generally lead them to violence, and they wish for violence against others, whereas you can't really even tie that in. So we've got at least one round peg and five square holes here. Somehow they're pounding the round peg through. Uh, history of the radical anti-government movement and overview of current militia activity will also be discussed, and of course it will because this course will be taught by Anthony Griggs of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, so anybody out there that follows this kind of news, if you happen to be law enforcement, this might be a handy conference to attend if you're not too far out. Maybe take some notes. Let us know what they talk about. Um, so the link to the PDF will be in the information box. And also just from the video, you can probably get some critical information, find the right people to contact. If maybe you want to give them a buzz and ask them just exactly what this converse, this whole course is all about, really. All right, well, there you heard it. That's what it's about. And so apparently, I believe that I am a sovereign citizen, and that means that I am in the same league as uh, neo-Nazi skinheads and uh, black separatists and uh, people like that. And that I am a radical. I am extremely radical, extremely dangerous, because you know we have a history of violence. And I believe that we, you know, even though I'm not a member of a militia, I believe that we have a right to assemble as a militia. In fact, I do believe I'm a member of a militia. And I think if you are a uh, able-bodied male, uh, according to the Dick Act, uh, which is law on the books in the United States still today and has its uh, roots in the uh, the initial Militia Act, uh, which was passed in the 1780s, um, and you know, basically the Dick Act replaced the Militia Act. I believe that you are a member of a militia, and you're called upon to defend your country. And because I believe that, because the United States government says so. But because of that, yes, 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 yours truly, and you, if you agree with me, uh, because you believe in sovereignty of the citizen, uh, are a violent danger to society. That's how I understand. That's how I interpret it. Now, this is why I want. A law enforcement official that'll go. And if you'll get in touch with me, if you are a Leo and you can get to this thing, and you can get in and you can get the actual story, um, you can even get in touch with me in advance. I would love to have you come on the show, do an interview, and tell us what really went on there. And the good and the bad and the ugly. 
If we're overreacting, I want to know. If we're underreacting, I want to know. I want to know what these people are telling the officers that drive around and pull people over, and, and what does it mean when they have a certain bumper sticker on their car or a certain tattoo on their arm? You know, and if it's a swastika, that's one thing. But if it's uh, live free or die, that's another. And let me give you my explanation of why I believe we're all sovereign citizens. We all are. It's just whether or not you choose to exercise your sovereignty and what it means to me. The Constitution of the United States is very clear in the way that it distributes its powers among three branches of government and to federal and state governments. In case you were confused at all, the founders got back together and did a thing called the Bill of Rights and said all the things the government could not do. Then in the Ninth Amendment it said just because we said you can't do it doesn't mean that it's something you can do. If it doesn't say you can do it, you can't do it. That's basically what the Ninth Amendment says. It's just for anybody in government, if you're not clear... Just because we didn't say that you didn't, we didn't specifically say you couldn't, unless we specifically said you can, you can't. Then the Tenth Amendment, to make this abundantly clear, says if the powers are not given to the federal government in the Constitution, they defer to the states and the, or the people. Right? So that gives the states and the people sovereignty in the Constitution of the United States of America. Whatever the federal government is not constitutionally called to do, which is about 20% of what they're doing today is actually what they're called to constitutionally do, um, the rest of it is supposed to go to the states and the people. By going to the states, the state at the state level, the people control the state constitution and decide how much the state's allowed to do, and anything not there goes to the people. Meaning the states, the federal confederacy and the individual all share different objects of sovereignty. And the only way that the state gets authority is for the people to defer it to the state. And the only way, and this is the state with the little s, right? And the only way that the big state, the federal state, gets authority is for the people and the states collectively to defer it to the federal government. And that means that each level has its own sovereignty. This, this, I guess makes me a racist, Nazi, neo-whatever. You know, this, this, this lines me up as a domestic terrorist, I guess, to believe that the Constitution freaking means what it says it means. That, that's, that's, that is too far for me. And if they're teaching law enforcement this, then what we need to do, and I'm serious about this, then we need to collectively all get together and take organizations like Oath, Oath Keepers along for the ride, and we need to start re-educating our law enforcement officials. We need to start running our own conferences. We need to reach out. We don't need to see them as the enemy. We need to see the people giving them false information as the enemy and saying, do you believe this? If you do, you're at direct odds. with what it's... Now, I know that won't work for everybody. I know that they have some people out there that have a badge that shouldn't. But most people in law enforcement are good, hardworking men and women that just want to take care of their family and just want to serve their fellow citizens. But they believe what they're told because of the source. We have to combat that information with accurate information. And we have to not behave in any way like these ass clowns at the Southern Poverty Law Center who are the lowest forms of human life on the planet. If you step in human excrement and it's on the bottom of your shoe and you scrape that off with a knife, those people are a lower form of life than the microbes living in that. We need to combat this with truth. Not with anger, not with rage, with truth. And with some level of respect for people that go out there and risk getting their ass shot by these other people they're associating us with. And other people like that. Alright, let's move on to another one before I can freaking explode. 
Okay, the next thing I have for you today, no one sent to me. I actually dug this one up myself. It's from uh, David Galland, Managing Director uh, at Casey Research. And the article is called A Word on Corrections. And I got it because I have part of a newsletter I recommend you be part of called uh, The Daily Reckoning. And uh, it was one of their updates that had a link to this article in it. And uh, it's about silver. And those of you who have been worried that silver's taken such a beating lately, what is the future of silver? I did a show on that. This guy appears to agree with me and even be a little more bullish than I am. So let me read some of this article to you. And I'll give you a link so you can read the rest on your own. And as always, I'll give you my thoughts uh, kind of on this thing as a whole. So again, David Gallant, Managing Director, KC Research. Today I'd like to share a couple of thoughts on the matter of the correction in the commodities, which we have been so vocally warning and which has now occurred. After having written in early April about a possible market response to the end of QE2, specifically about it knocking the legs out from under the overbought precious metals and other commodities, the metals continued higher, causing some readers to express concern that we had led them astray. Any number of analysts opined that the market had already priced in the end of QE2, and thus even after Bernanke's press conference had decided it was go, go, go for higher commodity prices. Yet, I think it's always a mistake to credit the market with any real predictive value. Yes, reactive, yes, predictive, no. Benjamin Graham had it right when he first penned the profile of Mr. Market as being a maniac, as likely to overpay for an asset as he is to sell too soon. Put another way, if Mr. Market actually was in possession of a crystal ball, then gold would already be at $2,000 and silver at $75 and higher, because that's where the underlying fundamentals of the economy will eventually drive them. Just not quite yet. So what do I think about the current sell-off? First off, it was way overdue. And anyone who wasn't leveraged to the wrong side of the sell-off and who had built some cash should be thrilled that it happened. Silver, in particular, had been hammered down over 30% at one point. Now that's what I call a proper correction. Is it safe to go back into the water? I have to believe that the speed and depth of the sell-off makes it more likely that we'll see a pretty quick uh, bounce back. While no one can know when, or perhaps because no one can know when, And while we still have yet to see the actual economic consequences of the end of QE2, my suggestion would be to start buying in weekly or bi-monthly tranches of somewhere between 25 and 33% of the total cash you intend to reinvest in the metals and related investments. Already the metals appear to state something of a comeback, but that doesn't mean it's all blue sky from here. By buying in tranches, you not only hit the, you may not hit the exact bottom, but trying to hit the bottom is a fool's game. If you didn't raise cash as metals spiked higher over the month of April, or even uh, paid up for gold and silver, etc., don't kick yourself unless you were leveraged to the upside, in which case I can only empathize with you and wish you luck. In other words, what he's saying there, unless you were leveraged to the upside, unless you were buying silver and gold with margin. If you paid cash for it and you own it, relax, you're going to be okay. If you're in debt by purchasing it, you're in deep crap. Uh, that's, that's the Jack Spirigo version of this. Even if you paid $50 an ounce for your last ounce of silver, you will come out just fine in the end because the monetary system of the U.S. and the world is corrupt and degraded beyond redemption. It will falter and likely fail. And in time, everyone will be scrambling to pick up their precious metals at substantially, uh, at substantially higher prices. We have one more on this topic on um, what the future holds is the brand new Casey Report, which we've just been released. Okay, so you can read the rest of this article in the Casey Report if you want to. But I kind of agree, and I don't kind of agree. I still think there's more correction left in silver yet. It's either correction by a sideways trend, or it's correction by a drop. I'm not sure which one. 
But I think there's time here. So his, if you, basically what he's saying is if you want to put $100,000 in silver, and I'm not doing that, just to be clear. But basically you should buy $33,000 worth of it this week, wait another week or two and buy another $33,000, and another week or two and buy another $33,000 and make it $34,000 so you round off the $1,000 and there's your hundred grand. And do that a third at a time over the next few weeks. I don't think so. I would be more in time right now to just say for the next week or two do nothing. And if you're going to start now and you're going to say, I want to be finished by August buying all the precious metal I'm going to buy for 2011 and it's $100,000, I would be buying like 5 to 10% a week of, of whatever that is. And most of you guys I know, you don't think that way. You don't have that kind of money and neither do I. Uh, but if you were, even if you were a, a large investor with that kind of cash, let's say you dumped a bunch of silver right before it dropped and you put a bunch of cash aside and now with the correction you're ready to go back in, um, I think you'd be okay. Because I, I agree, long term, if you just went and bought it, I think you'd be fine if you're going to hold it for five or ten years. But if you want to maximize your potential profit here, uh, now is not the time to go in large. I think that we have a lot of time to figure out. And again, I don't, I'm agreeing with him. If you try to catch the bottom, it's a fool's game. But there's a big difference between catching the bottom and saying, well, it's at 36, could go to 24, 26. And I want to buy it around 28, 32 instead of 36. Right, and there's a uh, there's a lot of difference in the return there, uh, even the long term return. So, just some thoughts on that. But I think this is a great article, and I'm going to fo start following this David Galland a little bit better. He sounds like he's kind of switched on. Maybe I could even get the guy on for an interview because we're getting real close to being able to do stuff like that. All right, next, I am doing a lot with money lately, and there's a reason. And uh, I have been a very vocal critic of our college education system, our education system as a whole. Primary, secondary, the whole thing. It first, from first grade, from kindergarten, honestly, up through high school and university, I think we have all kinds of waste, all kinds of abuse, all kinds of crap. I think there's so much room to improve things. I think the one size fits all. So there's tons of things I don't like. But overall, you know what? If a kid goes to school, does their homework, occasionally gets a parent to put a foot in their ass to make them do their work, Uh, and, and is held to some level of accountability and has some level of individual desire, you will come out of an American school system with the ability to read, write, do math, and basically do whatever you want from there, whether it's a continuing... So it does work, even though I think it works inefficiently, ineffectively, and has a lot of problems, and we're overdosing our kids with terrible food and dope. But, I, you know, because, you know, the ADD, we'll just get them riddling. I'll sit down now. Yeah, well, you know what, if I give you, uh, if I give you quaaludes, you'll sit down too. I'll just put it to you that way. But I have to acknowledge that people do learn to read and write, and the education system basically functions, and in some areas better than others. But that's going to happen because the freaking government runs it. But where I've really been critical is the way that our government sells its citizens on the fact that the holy grail of the world for you is a college degree, and that everybody should go to college. Now, I want to explain something. Probably half of the people going to college right now belong there. And I don't mean that the other half don't necessarily belong there. I'm just saying half absolutely 100% should be there. Another half, some of them might should be there in different circumstances. Some of them might should be there if they did other things in their life to bring up their capability before they went. Some of them might should be there if they did two years in a in an inexpensive community college versus four years at university to save half of the cost of their degree and got some work experience along the way. Some portion of that half, but some major portion of that half should never even darken the door of a college classroom. They do not belong there. They are not capable of functioning at that level intellectually or like me, they could, but they don't have the freaking interest and they've been sold a lie. The 
government funded or the government guaranteed student loan program is how we put that group of people into the universities. That's how we get them there. And that's how we put them in debt damn near for the rest of their lives. And it is a debt you cannot escape. It's not like buying a house. You buy a house, you really screw up. Eventually, you realize you screwed up, you walk away, somebody takes the house back, you'll never pay it back, you declare bankruptcy. Even a bankruptcy won't get rid of a student loan. It will follow you forever. And it will continue to increase in, in penalties and taxes. One day I'm going to do a show on this. But as much as I've been critical on this, and I always get pushback, oh, the university makes you a more complete person, I'll buy ass. You know, I get like all I can bring out all the stats I can about people that have been successful in business without a degree. All the people that have gotten a degree that are working for freaking uh, Starbucks as a freaking manager of a Starbucks, and people will say, "Well, it's not just about a job; it's about becoming a more complete, well-rounded individual." You don't pay two hundred thousand dollars for that, okay? You don't pay a hundred thousand dollars for you don't pay fifty thousand dollars to become a more complete, rounded individual. Take ten grand, take a trip of the freaking world for a year. You know, that'll make you a more well-rounded, well-read individual. What are we sold this debt on? We're sold this debt on the education and the degree has value and it'll help your career. And the one statistic is the college-educated earn more than the non-college-educated, period. Doesn't matter if you point to a guy like me that's run multiple companies successfully. Doesn't matter. We're just going to ignore that guy. He's the, he's the, the exception. But I never thought of education because of this fact being in a bubble, a financial bubble. So let me stop rambling on about this, and let me get Gary Vaynerchuk on the line here. Gary, what do you think about the current state of our educational system? Are we in a bubble? Hey, everybody, it's Gary Vaynerchuk, and I want to talk to you about something I've probably been debating my whole life, which is education. What's been really interesting is that Peter Thiel, the, the core investor, owns 10% of Facebook. That's a lot of money. Came out recently and said, let's not talk about the tech bubble. Yes, there is a small tech bubble, but let's really talk about a bubble, the education bubble. Here's what Peter is saying. He's saying that education in America is a massive bubble where the value is completely off balance to what you're paying for it. And you're seeing reports coming out right now that this graduating class of college is the most in debt of all time. You see the job market, you see the world becoming much more entrepreneurial. And so he started a fund, 20 under 20. He is asking, he is asking 20 entrepreneurs to leave college or not go in the first place and he's going to fund them. 20 companies have to be under 20. And this whole thing has caused a ruckus, a brouhaha. Here's what he's saying. I'm going to give you $100,000, and over the next two years, so 50K a year, basically tuition you know, value, I'm going to give you this $100,000 investment in your business. You've got two years. He's going to obviously rent out a beautiful space, a long space. Everybody's going to hack along, kind of like these incubators that we've talked about in the past. And you've got to create your company at the end of the two-year window. But this debate goes on and on. What I'm saying is, does somebody who goes to Harvard Business School and amasses $250,000 in debt, is that the right move? Or do you go and you become an intern at Facebook or work with an entrepreneur on a, you know, a mentor program? And watching these 20 startups and how they succeed, God forbid, one of them becomes a Facebook or a Google or even something even smaller, let's say just makes $100 million. It's going to really rev this debate up. The world is changing. There's huge disruption in every market, publishing, and music, so why not education? Well, there you go. That's from uh, the famous Gary V. and obviously he wasn't really on the line. That's uh, from a, uh, a, a thing that's uh, that he has put out called uh, Next Wave with Gary Vaynerchuk. 
And I'll put a link to the YouTube video where you can uh, take a look at that. And if you comment on his video, please let him know you heard about him on the Survival Podcast. I'm sure he'll uh, he'll pay attention to that. Um, but it's an interesting thought, and it's something that I've never really thought of. But with all of this money being poured in, and the value, you cannot dispute this fact. Whether no matter whether you agree with me about the college system or not, you cannot dispute the fact that a person coming out with a four year degree in marketing, finance, economics, programming, I don't care what it is, the, the degree has less value in the marketplace today than it did in 1990. There's more people there, there's more money funding it, and there's almost ungodly amounts of money available to anybody that wants to go, and the degrees are being had more and more and more, and their value is going down, 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 down. And a degree, now there are certain degrees that exist today that didn't exist back then, but if we look at equivalencies... A degree in 1970 was worth a lot more than 1980, and it was worth more than uh, in 1980 than 1990. It was worth more in 1990 than 2000, and today it's worth less than ever. But there's more money pouring in than ever, and the people are coming out the other side with less ability to repay. So, and Gary didn't really allude to this. I'll talk about what he was talking about in just a second, but does that mean the bubble could pop? Does that mean at some point... Everybody that's supposed to pay just says the hell with this, I can't pay anymore, and stops, and it doesn't matter that I said you can't get away from it. Or does it also potentially pop this way? More and more prospective people going into college say, no, it's not right for me. I, I see what my big brother did. He's actually smarter than me, and he's serving up coffee at Starbucks. I struggled to get through high school. I know my parents are kicking me in the ass to go, but I'm not going and taking on debt. And if people stop borrowing that money and all these universities have expanded based on it, what happens to the university system if 20% less people, not even 50, just 20% less people are willing to be suckered into the debt trap and decide they're going to take another path? Does that bubble pop? Interesting one. Now, Gary's thing with these entrepreneurs that are going to each get hundred grand as an angel investment and things like that, uh, he said, you know, heaven forbid one become, you know, even 10% of what Facebook is or something like that. What if, let me bounce it a different way off you, of these 20, what if 15 come up with a business that's sufficient to provide them something that helps them live their dreams for the rest of their lives? Whether they cash out at $20 million, put the money away and draw off a pension early in life, basically you'd call it that, an annuity, or whether it becomes a $2 million business that pays them a quarter million dollar salary to run it, and they actually like running it and they don't want to go anywhere else except just keep building that business to whatever it is. Would we have to look at that and say, versus the, the, the performance of people that put $100,000 into their education, this works better? And if it does, what does that say? And does that help pop the bubble? I don't know. Um, on this video with Gary, there's about half of it I played for you. The other half is about branding with Apple and the iPod, and Apple overtaking Google is the biggest brand in the world. That's interesting, so you might want to watch the rest of that when you check out the video. Uh, but let's go into uh, one more here. This one comes from Greg, and I'm going to have a different opinion that I think many of you people will think that I will have on it. Not that I think this is right. How about this? Court decides that you have no right to resist illegal cop entry into your home. Police officer shows up, can we search the premises? Uh, no, I don't feel comfortable with that. Uh, well, we're, we want to. Well, do you have a warrant? No. Okay, you can't do it without a warrant. Uh, we're going to push you out of the way and go in anyway, and you have no right to physically impede the officer from entering your home. 
On the surface, I think this is nonsense, and I think that the court should be uh, held as a kangaroo court and their decision thrown out. I still feel that way, but I think there was a right decision here that wasn't either extreme. And I want to hear your thoughts on this. And how do we justify things like this? How do we work this out? Indianapolis, overturning a common law dating back to the English Magna Carta of 1215, the Indiana Supreme Court ruled Thursday that Hoosiers have no right to resist unlawful police entry into their homes. In a 3-2 decision, Justice Stephen David, writing for the court, said, if a police officer wants to enter a home for any reason or no reason at all, or no reason at all, a homeowner cannot do anything to block the entry. We believe a right to resist an unlawful police entry into a home is against public policy and incompatible with modern Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. David said we also find that allowing residency unne- uh, allowing resistance unnecessarily escalates the level of violence and therefore the risk of injuries to all parties involved without without preventing arrest. So in other words, if you resist, you're getting arrested anyway. So you might as well just let them look. David said the person arrested following an unlawful entry by the police can still be released on bail and has plenty of opportunity to protest the illegal entry in the court system. I don't worry about it. You can post bail? Seriously? The court's decision stems from a Vanderburg County case in which police were called, now listen carefully before you're too angry at the officers, not necessarily the court. The police were called to investigate a husband and wife arguing outside of their apartment. When the couple went back inside their apartment, the husband told police they were not needed and blocked the doorway so they could not enter. When an officer entered anyway, the husband shoved the officer against the wall. A second officer then used a sun gun on the husband and arrested him. Bad call by the husband here. Hear me out. Professor Eben Blondersteiner of Valparaiso University School of Law said the court's decision is consistent with the idea of preventing violence. I don't necessarily agree or disagree with that. Give me time on this one, folks. It is not surprising that they would say there's no right to beat the hell out of the officer, Steiner said. The court is saying we would rather opt on the side of saying if a police act wrongly in entering your house, your remedy is under the law to bring civil action against the officer. Justice Robert Rucker, a Gary native, that's Gary, Indiana, I guess, uh, and Justice Bent Dickerson, a Hobart native, descended from the ruling saying the court's decision runs afoul of the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. I'm going to leave it there. You can read the rest of the article if you want, but let me explain what I think is the right decision here. As the court, I would have, deci- I would have said, this is what I would have said if I were on this court. Um, an officer cannot enter the home without a warrant, without something called probable cause. In this instance, there was a reasonable belief that violence may have been done to one of the spouses. And the husband was blocking the officer from having a conversation with the spouse. Now, if the spouse, if the spouse had said, there's nothing here, and there was no, like she didn't have a black eye, or you didn't have any like intuitive feeling that she was lying about it, the officer should have turned and walked away. But, It, what it sounds like happened is that this woman could have been being, and maybe she wasn't, but the officers had reasonable reason to believe that she could have been dangered by her husband. So they wanted to investigate this further and make sure she wasn't being abused. So the officers should have had the right in this instance to enter the property under probable cause. So it's not that they didn't have a warrant and the guy, whether or not the guy had a right to resist because they didn't have a warrant, did they have probable cause? And they should have told the man, and they may have, we, I need to hear from the officers myself here to be fair about this. They may have told the man, we have probable cause, buddy. She, you know, but this court decision was about whether or not you have a right to resist the police coming into your home. 
And that goes into a huge can of worms. Because the police can invoke probable cause at any time. But I think they should at least have to. And then you have to take that to the court. If the police say, I think something's going on, I heard something, whatever, then you have to let them in. Now, the other side of this is, if the police say we're coming in anyway, how much resistance is acceptable? Is it 100% resistance? Do I have a right to shoot a cop because he wants in my house and I say he can't come in and he doesn't have a warrant? Should, you know, with proper training, the police should know, okay, fine, if this guy says he doesn't want in, we'll sit outside here. He's not leaving, we're not leaving, we'll wait for a warrant. And if they can't get a warrant, they don't get to go in. But I want you to understand that if a cop is walking by your house and he hears somebody screaming bloody murder in your home and he comes to your door and he's on all his senses alerted, he knocks on the door and you come to the door and say, there's nothing wrong on here at all, it's all fine. Uh, There's probable cause there he can force entry, even without a warrant. Because it sounds like violence is occurring on the property. Um, So I, I think we're going into a dangerous area of the court making this blanket statement. I think that this individual thing could have been handled without an overall blanket statement. I think this is a point where the federal government has to step in and push the state back because that's where federal sovereignty is supposed to, or federal supremacy is supposed to exist to protect the citizen, not to protect the state. Um, but I understand, and this is deeper than we want it to be. If we say it's okay for a person to physically resist entrance, where does that lead us? And, and how bad can that get? Um, I think it should be more that if the person uh, is forced to allow entry, that the officer should be uh, fired, at least, and probably incarcerated for violation of civil rights, if there was no probable cause. Uh, but this, this blanket statement is indeed wrong. But I want you, if you've had a knee-jerk reaction to this one, when you heard about it from me or if you heard about it elsewhere, I'd like you to consider thinking deeper about it and really examining some of the hard questions that go, well, you're not just you and me sitting in an armchair, but if you're actually put in a position where you have to make the decision, and that decision is going to have ramifications for a long time to come. So again, I'm not supporting the court's decision at all. I think the court's decision is wrong, but I do think that there was another way to handle it that would have allowed the officer to do their job. Let's uh, let's take another one. Okay, I'm putting this one out today because I want your help. This is the last one for the day. I know the show's a little bit long, but we're going to have a missed show on Wednesday, so uh, you might as well have a little bit of an extra show today. Um, this, I can only find one source that looks like um, a legitimate source. It's called the Epoch Times. Alex Jones had it out on Prison Planet, but basically he was citing this as his source. I can't find any other sources. When I only find one source... And here's what I found is one source, and this one points back to a Chinese article. It's in Chinese, so I can't read, and I don't know the validity. I can't find another independent source. When one source cites another, it's not two sources, right? It's one source. So I can't verify this is true or not. And if you can help me verify, and I can't find anything in mainstream news about this, uh, doesn't mean it's not true. But I'd like help in, um, in, in, in verifying or killing off this story. If it's true, it has certain ramifications. Even if it's not true, it actually has some things that we have to think about overall anyway. So I'm going to read it to you. Again, this is from the Epoch Times, and uh, it's by Chen Yilian. Uh, In a small hotel across from the Beijing Center for Disease Control and Prevention, a reporter from the New Express Daily, dressed in an isolation suit, interviewed a dozen unusual patients from different areas of China. Their symptoms are painful and debilitating and AIDS-like, but repeated tests for HIV have come up negative. 
Lynn Wan, one of the patients interviewed on March 24th in the New York Express Daily Report. So maybe there is this, but again, this is this, uh, all from stemming from one source here. Said he used to be chubby, but now he's skin and bones, and his joints have become all deformed. Lynn is referred to in the group as Big Brother for his kindness in giving the fellow patients hope when they feel hopeless with some have consi- when some have considered suicide. In 2008, Lynn's mother received a blood transfusion at a hospital. Afterwards, she experienced frequent night sweats, numb limbs, aches all over, creaking joints, rashes on her hands, and weight loss. In May of that year, Lynn accidentally became infected through contact with his mother's blood. Fourteen days later, he fell ill with swollen lymph nodes on his neck, sore knees that made clicking sounds, and pain all over his body. He started vomiting after every meal, and the left side of his face swelled up. In half a year, his weight dropped from 181 pounds to 115 pounds. Whew. Three months later, his wife and child developed the same symptoms. Sound like something? I didn't give you the title of this. Does that sound like a disease we all know that started really heavily in the 80s? We've all kind of forgotten about. Sounds like AIDS, doesn't it? All right, well, I'm going to give you the title now before I read the rest of the article. Highly Contagious AIDS-Like Disease Spreading in China. Okay. Lin said he went to every major hospital in Shanghai but could not get a definite diagnosis. He's taken the HIV test eight times, and each time the test turned out negative. Then he found an internet blog called The Negative Group, which he learned stands for HIV negative. He realized that the writing on this blog were all people like himself with the same kinds of symptoms, desperate for a cure. Several Chinese media have recently reported that the Department of Health of Gundong Province has confirmed that people in Beijing, Shanghai, and Gundong have fallen ill after being infected with an unknown virus. The patients think they have AIDS but text negative for HIV. Guangdong has organized clinical experts, epidemiologists, and psychologists to work together on these cases. The health ministry has also selected six provinces with more patients, including Beijing, Shanghai, Xinjiang, Hunan, Jingzhou, and Guangdong, to conduct epidemiological studies, but there are no results yet, the report said. In most of the 30 cases investigated by the New Express Daily for its March 24th report, people said their relatives and friends are also infected. Most of the 30 patients were infected through sexual contact. Some experts diagnosed them as having AIDS phobia. It's phobia. It's not real. You didn't really lose 115 pounds. However, the disease seems to be highly contagious and can spread by contact via body fluid. Uh, through kissing, shared utensils, sweat, and even protected sex. Once infected, the immune system appears to be attacked, which results in a decrease in white blood cells and the body's ability to defend against infectious disease and foreign material. So it looks like AIDS, but it's not AIDS. Again, I can't confirm this. If you want to read the rest of the article, you can. If you can find any way to confirm or deny this as an actual report or get me any more information about it, I would like to have it. And I'm not saying it's true. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying this is what I know so far. I want to examine the implications a little bit, though, because it's important that we think about this. I've always told you my two biggest fears for us on a, on a national slash global scale are pandemic and economic collapse. And the pandemic one scares me a hell of a lot worse. Now, the two coming together at the same time because things tend to pile up on each other, that really scares me. Uh, and the weakened condition of the United States during an economic collapse, leaving us more vulnerable to pandemic, that really scares me. But pandemic, the reason I fear that is that diseases are constantly mutating and changing, and it's only, only the virus needs one good day. We can have a million good days, and they can have one good day, and all bets are off. 
And this, apparently, if you remember when AIDS started, and everybody just thought it was a gay disease, and then, of course, you know, there's people that have this thing called bisexuality, and there's people that have this thing called, um, you know, drug use and intravenous drug using, and then it got into the, the blood supply until we were developed a way to screen for it. Eventually, it got into the, the, the general population, and, and anybody having unprotected sex was capable of spreading it, even through heterosexual contact. And uh, basically, we figured out what it was. We figured out how to treat it relatively effectively compared to what we knew in the 80s. We, we can treat AIDS patients much better today. And we really put a big stop on the spread through education and through you know people taking safe sex more seriously because it wasn't just a shot of penicillin anymore. And we kind of put a lid on it. Well, this sounds like, at least sounds like from the initial report, it's like AIDS. It's as bad as AIDS, but yet you can spread it even in ways that AIDS doesn't spread because AIDS doesn't spread through kissing. It doesn't spread with protected sex. It spreads only with a serious exchange of bodily fluids at the blood level. So is this a mutated form of AIDS that doesn't show up? Or is it a completely new disease? Is it related to AIDS in any way or does it have no relation to AIDS? doesn't really matter. Here's what the big thing is. If it's if it comes up negative for AIDS, that means that it could get into a blood supply of a nation and begin to spread through blood transfusions, uh, just like AIDS did when we didn't know how to screen for it. Um, I don't know if it's real or not, but it does, again, restate how important it is that we prep and we be prepared to deal with pandemic uh, illness. It's something that definitely can happen. And I really believe it's something that will happen at some point. You and I might be dead, or it might be tomorrow morning. And that's the, I, I am not an oracle. I cannot see the future. I can't tell you if this thing is going to mutate in some way that's going to become the next one or not. And I'm not going to pretend to. And I'm not going to tell you, oh, inside sources, they told me that the government developed this in a laboratory, and they're experimenting on the Chinese, because that's stupid, and it's nonsense. And anybody that tells you that is lying. I'm not saying anybody did, but I have a feeling somebody might have. That's just a guess there. What I'm saying is, it's just another reminder of how nature works and how illnesses mutate and adapt so that they can continue to infect hosts at higher rates and, and do more damage to the host with the infection. And it's another reason to prep. It's not a reason to panic. You don't go chicken little. But it's another reason to be an empowered prepper and make sure you're doing the right thing so that if catastrophe ever hits, whether it's in the form of weather or a pandemic or the economy, or just something that happens to you that you're ready to deal with it. Again, as I'm wrapping up today, I want to remind you, if uh, you want to join the Member Support Brigade, the discount code is the word 20. Uh, I'll let that run through Wednesday, since I'm going to miss Wednesday. As, a, as an apology for missing a show, I'll extend the discount, because uh, I'm just not going to be able to do a show Wednesday with getting relocated. I'll be back Thursday. Tomorrow there will be a show. It'll be a rebroadcast of the interview I did on Rational Public Radio. Again, that's not national, but Rational Public Radio. Great group of guys over there. Really enjoyed spending some time with them, and I think you'll enjoy that interview. Until then, this has been Jack Spirgo with the last official episode of the Survival Podcast from Arlington, Texas, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Let me show you a better way.
children just can't pay. Nobody up there cares. They're living for.